0: You're listening to episode one eighty six of Three Moves Ahead, the once and future official podcast of Flashofsteel dot com, coming to you on the Idle Thumbs Network. I'm your host for this week, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is one of my regular panelists, my dear friend Doctor Bruce Garrick. Hello, how are you? Would you like some coffee? I would actually. I just had one Red Bull and I'm still fading. It's been one of those weeks. All right. I should have gotten a coffee. Okay. But uh you're not going to make that happen, are right? you?
1: Uh, I can make that happen by having you go get one.
0: That's not very helpful at Bruce. Mm, sorry. Best I can That's do. That's okay. Uh, with us uh, this week is uh, John Peterson, who wrote a book, uh, Playing at the World, which I blogged about and have written about a couple of times on uh, the blog, uh, a book that I am a huge fan of, and we're having him on to talk about a couple of the sections of the book, specifically on the history and evolution of gaming, and hopefully we can tie it into the legacy of wargaming and John I really appreciate you doing this I'm really it was actually quite short notice it was actually but uh, it's a Saturday I,
2: I have nothing better to do on a Saturday other than hang out on podcast so it's my pleasure to be here
0: <laughs> uh, so I guess I'm gonna start with I guess the kind of the obvious question before I get into the talking about the history and the evolution and all this really really neat stuff uh, you discovered in the book and your research is what was your motivation uh, for writing this book in the first place because there's a lot of this information is in a thousand other places, and it's scattered. But if you wanted to find it, you could find it. But this is really a great, huge, massive synthesis of a lot of this material. Lost Some of it original, some of it not. Ended. But what was your motivation for actually getting all this stuff together?
2: Well, I, I wouldn't say that a lot of this was easily available when I started anyway. Um, I mean, a lot of the sources that I had to hunt down for this, um, I went to some trouble to get. But, I mean, really, I looked at what some of the histories were online of gaming, and I just kind of wasn't satisfied in general with, with with what they said. So I thought I could do better. I thought it could be better research, so I just dove in.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't characterize this. I, I was one of the things I want to point out is how uh, impressed I am with the uh, with the attention to, uh, you know, the primary sources and, and the detail. I would say that yeah. so, a lot of this stuff is so um, – I mean, I – I consider myself a, a long-time war gamer with a lot of uh, involvement in the sort of minutia of the war game hobby, and I've, I don't think I've ever actually seen an original copy of Panzerfaust magazine. So, and uh, yeah. some of these uh, old, um, uh, zine, you know, amateur zines that you had to dig into archives for. I mean, that's impressive. So, I've,
0: that that is that is truly original work. I mean, I've I haven't even heard of half of these things. I mean, where ready you already even find those? Well, I mean, so I've
2: been collecting, I guess, gaming-related stuff for maybe 12 or 13 years, seriously. And I started this project, I mean, I, really the first moment I knew I was going to do this was in 2005. I was in the, the British Museum, actually, and I saw a, a Roman 20-sided die from, you know, the first century AD. There, there have been pictures of these online. You've probably seen one once or twice. And I just thought there was so much about the history of the hobby that I just didn't know um, despite the collecting that I'd done and kind of in, in 2007 you know when I really decided I was gonna go all-in on this and see where I could get I um, you know I started bidding heavily on eBay I started hitting up every library I started writing to random people and saying hey do you have these things if so can I come see them um, and eventually I managed to accumulate a pretty decent supply of what seemed to me like the, the critical resources to be able to tell the history and I mean if you think you know a, a Panzerfaust is obscure i mean things like the the wargame digest the very first wargaming journal which jack Scruby started in 1957 um acquiring a complete run of those was was quite a challenge compared to finding Panzerfausts or, or something like that how'd you do it again mo- mostly ebay some um, some kind of behind the scenes deals with people that i knew had good stuff and and there was at least one case with those those in particular with the wargame digests where um, a guy named Art Mickle, who had been a very early subscriber, he passed away, and in an estate sale, his, his stuff became available, and uh, I managed to, to snatch it up. Um, so it was, it was a mix of, of a bunch of kind of different strategies, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I hesitate to even kind of tabulate how many sources it was when we get down to these ephemera and zines and things like that. It was many thousands. I mean, by some ways, I could estimate it way over 10.
0: So what was the most surprising thing you found in your research in the evolution of wargaming? Focus on that because your book actually goes through tons of stuff. It starts with wargames and it goes its connection to role-playing games, and it goes a little bit into the whole "let's pretend" the games just pretend to be people, which is kind of like LARPing, um, which is a kind of derogatory term with how, considering how much stuff you cover and into literature. But it, among the wargaming stuff in particular, what was the most surprising thing you found, in your opinion? something you didn't know or was shocking or what have you?
2: Sure, I, I certainly wasn't expecting that um, we would find that the feedback loop between the referee and the player kind of verbally expressing the state of the game would go back to the 1820s. I, I kind of, you know, and again, this, this is a bit of, prefigurement of role-playing, and I don't want to sit here and talk all day on your blog about role-playing today, but, I mean, when we think about what people were doing in the, the Prussian tradition, we think about boards, we think about dice, we think about, you know, figures on the board representing forces. The fact that even, you know, 200 years ago now, uh, you had this 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 component where there was a referee who was interpreting written orders, going off and kind of in private, deciding what the changes to the game state would be based on that, and kind of reporting them back to the players in a competitive environment. I thought it was really remarkable. I mean, I thought that idea was a far more recent innovation when I began with this. I mean, I, you know, and, and when I think about it, a lot of the um, you know kind of board and miniature wargaming conventions were much earlier than I would have imagined. When you look at Helvig in 1780, you know, you see so many of the elements, I think, that we associate with uh, board wargaming. You see the assignment of a a numeric strength to pieces. Pieces either have a strength of one, two, or three, and they can kind of collaborate to try to attack fortifications to exceed the amount of the strength score of the defenders in order to destroy them. Um, To see this in 1780, I mean, it was really remarkable just how far all this went back.
1: Yeah, the um, the whole Kriegsspiel concept is was was nice for you to kind of go through and uh, sort of expound on how um, you know militaries the the, the idea that um, people would come up with these um, games where you had grids and chits and uh, fought out battles in a, in a probabilistic way. Um, I, I don't think people really realize how uh, how deep that history is.
2: And the, the probability, too, I think, and I, I stress this in the book, is one of the major kind of innovations, that there was this critical chocolate and peanut butter moment, right, when, when people understood enough about statistics to be able to go to the artillery ranges and say, okay, you know, we're going to get our 10 best sharpshooters, and they're going to shoot at this wall that's 100 yards away, and we'll see how many hit it. Then we'll see how many hit it at 200 yards. Then we'll see how many hit it at 300 yards. and We'll use those to develop statistics of how much we can expect will be hit. Once you kind of have those statistics nailed down, once your artillery work has kind of explored that statistical space, you know the, the chocolate and peanut butter moment comes when you realize you could use a die to model a fictional event based on those probabilities. And again, this this goes back to like 1820. This is a you know profoundly ancient discovery, but it was completely unprecedented in intellectual history. There'd never been. An idea that you could simulate an event that way, based on what we understand of statistical models of reality, and there were all these kind of prerequisites that needed to come together for that to be possible. There needed to be a lot of military science. There needed to be a lot of just just conceptual mathematical groundwork that was done by people like Pascal and Fermat, who, you know, in studying gambling largely, ascertained kind of what these probable, you know, these mechanisms of probability were. And kind of once you got those together, you developed a way to simulate fictional events in a in a conflict that, as time went on, just grew richer and richer and deeper and deeper. And this is kind of the, the premise of my book, until eventually you get to simulation of things that go beyond conflict and into trying to simulate worlds and people and, you know, all kinds of bizarre events, which now with computers are, are very easy for us to simulate.
1: Yeah, that's. I think that uh, it was interesting when I was reading, especially that you do... Um a great job at the beginning of the book kind of highlighting, you you really systematically go through how, uh, you know, Gary Gygax uh, was really a war gamer who latched on to the idea of miniatures and then that developed into this whole other, you know, sort of, um, uh, I guess, genre that, uh, you know, that nobody really had a name for at the time and you, you make, uh, you know, you make painstaking Uh, take painstaking care to to actually call things the way that they were called at the time um but uh but it's amazing how you really see uh role-playing coming out of uh actually what seems to be kind of a a counterintuitive thing which is the the desire to have as uh sort of quantitatively modeled historical battles as possible and where Chainmail came in and then was uh, sort of, that was built on into something, you know, completely different and, uh, you know, uh, unexpected and uh, unforeseen.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, what became unsuspected and unforeseen there very rapidly was the idea of simulating the unreal as well as things that were real or or at least historical. Um, Once you kind of get into this question of how do you, Figure out how a knight with a sword and armor would interact with a dragon. <laughs> You're exactly. obviously in, in really different territory. And um, that pissed but- people off,
1: though. I love the quote that you had in there. You had a, uh, there, was, a <laughs> yeah. there was a there was a letter from a reader of a of a, of a um. Of a fanzine who uh, responded to Gary Gygax's, uh description of this fantasy battle by saying, "You know, I gave this to a friend of mine to trying to convert it to wargaming, and he hasn't stopped laughing." <laughs> right, right.
2: That was from uh, Wargamers Newsletter, so a British a British scene run by Don Featherstone. Yeah,
1: right. So I mean, I, I was I was shocked that uh, there there was such a resistance. You you have a whole section about how you know uh, how orcs and uh, you know fantasy creatures were incorporated into basically what was you know medieval uh miniatures rules and how much resistance there was and how y- you were basically they were trying to simulate something and then just take this completely unreal concept and 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 fit it into something that was really a simulation and how uh, how sort of how they just that didn't fit and it didn't fit for a lot of the for the, of the community which is amazing considering what happened afterwards
2: Yeah, and and, I mean Gygax insisted until he was blue in the face that people who were exposed to this at conventions or whatever thought it was really enjoyable and he he could understand how if you were just kind of getting it as hearsay you might think it was nonsense. but you know, despite he, he took polls about this, is another thing I record in the book. You know, he mm-hmm. he had a column in Panzerfaust, and he polled his readership to ascertain their interest in various genres of war gaming that included fantasy. And fantasy scored so low that he had to promise he, he'd stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but again, what what happened a couple of years later? It was something no one really could have expected. And I do spend some time in the book as well talking about why I think fantasy kind of had the appeal it did, and. You know, one, one of the things I point to is I think the, the anti-war movement at the time and kind of where America was with Vietnam and where kind of the, the role in, in particular that fantasy played relative to our real difficulties with combat as a society then. Okay. Um, Which is
1: interesting because of the uh, comments that you make in the sort of perception of war gamers as being uh, more conservative than uh, the general population.
2: Right. I mean, if you look at um, pictures of these kids at the, you know, 1967 Melbourne uh, International Federation of Wargaming Convention, you know, these, these guys do not look like hippies in Haight-Ashbury, right? These are mm-hmm. kids with nice haircuts and horn-rimmed glasses, wearing suits, shaking hands with a, you know, a, a colonel and standing next to a smiling priest. I've got a picture of this in the book. Um, you know, what image could be more radically different from what you would see in, like, Rolling Stone the same month, you know, right. of, uh, of what you see in the Apple and the General there? So I mean that that um, definitely there was in wargaming this this conservative I think um, undercurrent and it positioned itself against the counterculture and mm-hmm. you can even read Thomas Shaw and Jim Donegan and people like that kind of kind of commenting on the counterculture of the time and in, in various ways and in expressing their discomfiture with it but you know when it came down to what was going to be successful mass youth culture product in 1974. Um, It certainly was not going to be something that, and you're paraphrasing someone I quote in the book, you know, repeated the horrors that they saw every night on the six o'clock news that were coming back from Vietnam in the newsreels. And, you know, that that was a necessary condition of this being successful. And, you know, the, the moral ambiguity of the the actions in Vietnam compared to in the fantasy environment, just the, the, the beautiful distinction of alignment, the beautiful here's good and here's evil. There Here's an orc it cannot possibly be morally wrong to slay him because the orc is necessarily evil. Um, you know, This was a huge component of how violence could be marketed in this way and to this particular culture without offending it. It's
0: interesting that there are there's, throughout your book, there's, you have a lot of instances where the wargaming community does have these, well, say squabbles, but these debates over what is wargaming about? What is it for? You have it you know, in the Kriegspiel period, you have it in the uh, 50s with the Wargaming Digest, you know, we need to make this more simulation-oriented. No, we need to broaden the community and make it more enjoyable. You have... Um, it? was it? Was it Stevenson who, is, who, was, who has, is embarrassed to let people see him <laughs> right. play his his own handmade toy soldier game? <laughs> right. um, he's he's embarrassed when people see him doing it, and it's so. There's this combination of shame, but also debates within the community over what what is what are we simulating? What is wargaming about? And I think you still see that a little bit today in the gaming community, in the war game community, in the PC gaming uh, war game community for sure. Wouldn't you agree, Bruce?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I. I uh I see the um, old uh, Avalon Hill inserts that I still have in a bunch of games that you know from back from I don't know 1976 or 77. And there's a there's an Avalon Hill catalog, and one of the first things on the front it says, "War gamers are not warmongers," uh, <laughs> and and then it, you know goes on to talk about how uh, you know these. So the uh, the Midway game was endorsed by um, C. Wade McCluskey, who uh, led the dive bombers onto the. Uh, Onto the Japanese at Midway and um, uh, the uh, battle, uh, battle of the Bulge game. Also, all these games have they've they've tried to associate a mil, you know respected military figures with them, um, General McAuliffe uh, and Nuts and Bastone and all that kind of thing. Right, right. Uh, yeah. So so there is definitely a um, a uh, a defensiveness, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where it is now. I mean, I think that uh, I mean, first of all, I've, I've kind of lost touch with the uh, with the. Board game hobby and with uh, with gaming, I think uh, games have are, are on the defensive just for being games. Uh, never mind, uh, never mind. War games. Uh, so, um, but I, I, that's been around for for a long time.
2: Yeah, I mean, arguably, um, you know, fantasy as well has always kind of had people complaining about what its influence is. Going back to Don Quixote, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. any of these kinds, you know, the idea yeah. that. Dealing with violence or dealing with fantasy can inspire violence or, you know, inspire insanity or whatever is a century-old idea. And definitely it is the case that the, you know, the, the Avalon Hill community positioned itself very carefully around a set of what it perceived to be um, morally safe wars. You don't see uh, Tom Shaw putting out games about Vietnam. Um, you see more and more as, as we move from the 60s into the 70s reaching back again to World War II repeatedly and what what more battles can we hit there (laughs) where it was kind of clear that America was doing great and we were doing the right thing. And, um, you know, no one would argue that World War I, II was great. We were doing the right thing. Um, And, you know, so it kind of became a a process of historical reenactment eventually, I'd say, where it was looking at something very different from the state of warfare at the time was being depicted in these games. And
1: as the, as the sort of, uh, as time recedes, then games become more, you know, sort of, uh, it's more acceptable to publish games on, on those subjects. I mean, there are plenty of Vietnam games out now, um, or enough, I would say. I mean, it's not going to be popular because nobody wants to, uh, to fight that conflict, uh, and, and lose. Um, but, uh, but, um, I think that that also has a, has a way of, um, sort of sorting itself out with the passage of time.
2: I well, see that, you know, Korea too is, again, you want to, play, we're both in trenches on different sides of this uh, this you know very slowly moving front for you know X number of years. Um, so I think some wars lent themselves to more kind of dramatic actions as well. And you know when you look at what kinds of actions you depict at Vietnam they'd be much more kind of squad level actions probably than what you'd see with like a bulge or something like that. And that too I think influenced it. But obviously as we all know throughout the 70s you know we saw more and more of the the kind of squad level things. I mean really from Panzer blitz through sniper through through squad leader and so on. I mean we, we get in deeper deeper into those those smaller tactical groups.
1: Well tell, tell us about what you found as you started digging through these old uh, you know these old uh, uh, amateur fanzines that you know maybe only had you know 50 copies printed um, and w- and were you know ways for these uh, you know scattered, you know very niche, uh, people with very niche interests to communicate that uh, you know eventually this this hobby sort of you know grew and flourished and then didn't flourish as much what what was that like? What what did you find in these things?
2: Well I mean the first thing I found that the, there was nothing new under the sun that y- even between you know the five years that the War Game Digest was operated by Jack Scrooby from 57 to 62 they explored so much of the design space of wargaming. They looked at so many of the possible rules, so many of the possible scenarios, so Mm -hmm. many of the possible, um, you know, divisions of of armies that would possibly participate in in conflicts. And Charles S. Roberts, for example, was a a participant then. And you know, you wonder how much of uh, Gettysburg and its innovations you can see and kind of things you see in the War Game Digest. You know, the, the the early hobbyists thought long and hard about this, and it's difficult to find things in the hobby up until at least the end of the 70s and 80s, until computers made so much more possible than ever was before. Um, it's it's hard to find things that weren't at least prefigured by what the earliest hobbyists really really had thought about.
0: Uh, did that surprise you that there were just, because you mentioned a few times that there are, you know, there are some great giant leaps forward in a few places uh, through gaming history. You have, you know, the disc- the st- you mentioned statistics, which is a big one. Uh, you have um, the mass production of polyhedral dice, because I didn't know that they were n- so recent. I had no idea that they were a 1960s invention in like mass numbers. I, it hadn't even occurred to me that this sort of thing wasn't around longer than that. I, I knew it didn't create the 20th century. I thought, I mean, how hard could it be, right, to mass produce dice? But then I realized you need a market for it, and you do a very good job of laying all that out. It would make a really nice article on his own, I've said, in the history of DICE. Uh, but it's a surprise that conceptually there are so few really new ideas, because you have instances in the book where people invent a game, and it's very, very similar to something else that they may never have played, never have heard of. You have the difference in the American games that are a little bit like some of the German war games, but also have their own little way of doing things. It's not quite clear anybody's talking to each other, if they have a means to talk to each other. Did it surprise you that there has been so, that the same questions do keep coming up over and over again? Well, again, since
2: there was so much reinvention of the wheel, because there wasn't a continuous community, that was inevitable up until the 50s, right? So that because we have this War Game Digest, because there really was a record, and sure, it's not a perfect record in the sense that they're hard to come by these days, but so many of the people who participate in it went on to become very influential and to run other journals. I mean, you can look at Don Featherstone's War Gamers newsletter as one of the two successors to the the, War Game Digest. There, there was a continuity of that community and of that thinking. And so from that point forward, again, it's kind of like there's recorded history. Everything gets easy from 1957 forward. You really can just see what, what the leaps were. And I, I definitely do think that there were, there were leaps that weren't depicted in that. And again, I, I do think that um, D&D is kind of a, a focal point for a certain deepening of simulation again that goes beyond the simulation and necessarily conflict and forces and into something different where you're simulating i got up this morning and i went to the tavern and i talked to some people there and that's kind of what my game is today <laughs> um you know which is it's just a very different kind of game now again, I think it's a it's a logical extension, and as we see certain techniques arising from multiple quarters, and it wasn't just Guy X and Artisan. We see this in England from Tony Bath's games, especially um, experimenting with the same kinds of open-endedness. Now, all of that, again, has this dependency to some degree on, on this, that feedback loop I was talking about earlier between a referee and the player and the ability for the player to kind of propose that their action be anything they can describe, that the referee thinks is plausible enough to be their action for, for that turn. And when that was designed by Reiswitz as a military strategy, I mean, he, he intended this to simulate the experience of command. He had intended this to be like, if you're a commander in the field, you need to write orders to your subordinates. So here's pen and paper. You tell me what you're going to write to people based on what you know is going on. The referee then kind of goes off with it and thinks about it like they're the subordinate and thinks about what the subordinate would do and what the consequences would be based on the remainder of the game situation. Returns with this and says, okay, here's what happened or here's what your scouts tell you. Now, what would you like to do? <laughs> And you know, so that, that, I think, has a very different implication, though, than the, the more um, hobbyist approach to this. You know, the, simulating the experience of command to that degree was intended to be an educational experience that would better prepare you to actually go out into the field and do things. And once you, uh, you know, unshackle this from that motive of teaching you how to actually instruct soldiers and, and make it just a matter of how do you want to spend a nice Saturday afternoon... Um, that's when you get kind of the radical differences that we see in, in D anD D and in its many successors.
1: What was your your biggest? Um, what do you, what do you think was the biggest uh, leap that that role playing made? I mean, how, where was the break from wargaming into into role playing? Um, I mean, you discuss it in the book, but I, for the I mean, most of our uh, listeners haven't haven't read your book, and I think that would be interesting for you to elaborate on.
2: Sure, I mean, I was kind of already just alluding to it a moment ago in the sense that mm-hmm. there, there are a few criteria, I think, that role-playing games manage to combine simultaneously. And they were, they were things that had been around before, in the sense, you know, that referee-to-player feedback loop is mm-hmm. one of the critical ones. And again, it had been around since, since 1820. What, what you won't find in 1820, I guess, is a game that is down at this um, very tactical level of a, a single person that you're representing or that is a surrogate for you and D&D wasn't always played precisely that way in its earliest incarnation and in that you you had other kind of subordinates who your primary player might command but mm-hmm. you had a, a surrogate that was in the game and there was a strong identification between you as the player and the surrogate as your character and you you really had all of the freedom of agency as a character that a person might possess i mean that's that's what kind of began to set these things apart from from a war game. um you as a person could decide that you didn't want to have anything to do with the war and you wanted to go off and, you know, read poetry today instead of, instead of going, going to battle. And in a role-playing game, that's actually a legitimate choice, perhaps not an interesting one, and the referee might find ways to, to throw obstacles in your path if that's what you stated you wanted to do. But that open-endedness, um, I think, is inseparable from what it is to play a role-playing game. Now, as we get into the, the subsequent computerization of these things, some certain trade-offs were made, I think, in order to kind of let the computer become the referee and take the place of a human who understood your commands. And you have a much more limited vocabulary <laughs> in the way that you can communicate with a computer in a computer role-playing game. But that, and again, the, the, so the, the idea of a surrogate and the idea that you, you dictate the actions of that surrogate with the same freedom of agency that you would have if you were a real person is what really differentiated these games from from war games?
1: I didn't see. Um, did you did you investigate at all, like the, the actual specific mechanics of of war games that were sort of gamed by the military? I know there's the famous uh, example of the Japanese misgaming Midway, where uh, they actually some reports have the um, uh, Japanese actually uh, predicting the United States uh, response and uh, the referee simply sort of um, uh, unilaterally uh, refloating some sunken Japanese carriers that uh, that kind of presage the whole uh, the whole debacle did you have did you get any any of that in uh, in your research
2: yeah I talk a bit about this um, at the very end of my uh, section on the history of war games I talk a bit about uh, military and political war games kind of when, so once once the bomb dropped, and again the Japanese game referring to is a little little sooner than that. But once the bomb dropped, uh, wargaming in the United States for the military changed immediately, because the bomb changed the story from how do I manage. Um, you know, forces on a continent and figure out how to maneuver them around to, how how do I play this game of, like, brinksmanship, where I have, you know, 1,100 nuclear missiles aimed at you right now, <laughs> and, you know, we're going to have a, a conversation about it. And this, obviously, this culture gave rise to games like diplomacy, ultimately. I think that the games that Rand pioneered at this time based on their game theory, based on the work of people like John Forbes Nash, um, based on a, a bunch of the intellectuals who who they kind of called together for this, that created a very different gaming culture than what previous war games have been like at all. But yeah, there are German examples and uh, the Japanese example you referred to as well. The Germans really wargamed uh, a lot of kind of what the response would be of their pushes east uh, prior to... There was a guy named uh, uh, Erich von Manstein who wrote a, an autobiography that kind of detailed what some of the wargaming had been before really the Second World War started. And they had looked at a lot of this from its political dimensions as well Which, as from its military dimensions.
1: Sorry to interrupt you. That's. Are you talking about in in Panzer Leader? I'm sorry. Are you talk, talked about Eric von Manstein. You said in his autobiography, you're talking about in Panzer Leader.
2: No, it's uh, sein Soldatenleben. Oh, okay. Is the name of the book? It's from from a soldier's life. Oh. Okay. Um, it's basically just kind of goes through um, – I, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, too. It's it's right in my book, whether I'm right or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I'm pretty sure that was the name of the book. Um, and it just describes kind of some of the – it's a bit of an apology, actually, for what his relationship was for the Third Reich and um, kind of how he got into the situation he got into. But
1: Interesting. Troy, what's your take on all that?
0: It's, it's kind of impressive to see. I mean – The professionalization of wargaming and how it becomes sort of this not really mass, but this targeted towards a mass audience is really interesting transition because you do have somewhere you have this because they start they start as these as they say as these officer exercises people are learning how to become soldiers how to become commanders and um, what you don't have and they're not really targeting unlike you know chess which is for everyone to play, they assume a certain level of skill and a certain level of knowledge. And then at some point, through you have, because of the general interest in war and general interest in conflict, they do become not teaching tools, or well, they do teach a little bit, but ways of you know reliving conflicts, reliving great battles, so you can try to become Napoleon, or try to do better than Lee. So there's this... I'd I I like you to speak a little more about that transition, that shift, because that's really, what I think, one of the fascinating parts about, you know, wargaming. How you can know, of the Rand Institute, how its game theory stuff leads somehow to diplomacy, which I think is, you know, one of the most brilliant games ever made. It's probably ruined more friendships than adultery has. Uh, right, it's, right. you know, it's it's just one... Of, I, I know some people in my baseball league who have said, oh, we should, we should, play, we should play diplomacy... Over email, and I was like, "Are you crazy? You know, we, we already hate each other enough in this baseball league, and you want to play diplomacy now?" Uh, but but so there looks like a bunch of guys and get together and play that. And but that isn't. But th- so where do these? Where does the transition come? Where do we get from these really closed? We are trying to do this to learn policy and change our soldiers and what might happen if we attack Pearl Harbor. To hey guys let's sit around and play the Battle of of, 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 of Gettysburg again because Gettysburg is really one of the big moments for Avalon Hill um, when you got the Gettysburg game out and a few other uh, great games in the 60s and 70s so where do you have that shift where does that come from
2: well I guess there's there's two things there I mean the The Rand sort of things for military wargaming, I think, were different from the things that specifically inspired Charles S. Roberts. So I think Charles S. Roberts was inspired by things like, um, I talk about a guy named Raymond, E.A. Raymond, in my book, and he isn't very well known. There were a couple of people who I thought were kind of seminal to the development of the hobby in the early 20th century that a lot of previous authors in the history of wargaming hadn't written about. One of them is is Bel Geddes, and the other one is, is Raymond. Um, and information about both of their games is kind of hard to come by, but Raymond based a lot of his account on Bel so you kind of have to understand Bel to understand where, where Raymond came from. But, you know, Raymond wrote a description of his game for um, the reserve officer for a U.S. Army Reserve publication, and I'm pretty sure that when Charles S. Roberts was a reservist, he would have had access to this, and I suspect that his account may have helped kind of Roberts see the way that he went in, in, in tactics. Now, once you have tactics and it's successful enough and you're building tax- tactics, too, it's p- pretty clear that Gettysburg and Chancellorsville followed from the upcoming, you know, uh, anniversaries, right? The centennial sure. anniversaries, the battles, and that was a pretty um, clear economic decision. If you look at the economics of that as well, Gettysburg was by far their their bestseller. Um, it was, you know, like one out of every three games they sold for the two years around that was, was a copy of Gettysburg. So... Um, you know, was that was a wise decision economically? But I think that the Rand crew didn't so much influence that, but they did. I think end up influencing Colhamer. If he, if he were here, he would he would say absolutely not that I was that I was misrepresenting him. But. Um, <laughs> just based on my own kind of look at the the way the system evolved and the fact that I know that he was working in the operations research community at the time, and those people were deeply in bed with ideas going around at RAND, that he was hanging out in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where a lot of people like Leo Bloomfield were experimenting, experimenting with this then. Um, I think this had to have had an impact on the way that diplomacy evolved. But I, I see those really as separate traditions. And, you know, the Right. Uh, Callhammer may have been influenced to put out a board game by the sudden success that he saw of Tactics 2 and Gettysburg and so on when those came out in 58, and Diplomacy came out about a year later. Um, yeah. But clearly, what he'd been doing had been underway already before Tactics 2 and Gettysburg came out.
0: So, we want to go to where we were getting this in the early 20th century, where they get this idea of making sort of a more popular type of war game, because once again, they're not coming out of the military tradition specifically.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, Bell Geddes, I think, he he must have known Wells. Um, that's kind of my best guess at this, and being who he was and the kind of guy that he was, he just went way overboard with it um, and built this hugely elaborate game. And, um, you know, he, he was kind of famous for hosting these lavish society gatherings in Manhattan, and he built all kinds of obscure contrivances for this. He was a very famous industrial designer, and so you know, as a consequence of that, he could really build kind of whatever he wanted. And he made this war game just basically to entertain entertain his society friends and it took on a life of its own. These became these protracted campaigns that stretched out over, you know years of, uh, of you know different individual conflicts, tens of thousands of units involved, um, just an incredible scale of the whole thing. And he published some accounts of this and again, Raymond, um, reviewed those accounts in one issue of the the Reserve Officer, and then kind of explained you could take that though and distill it down into something a bit more practical. If you're not, you know, some lavish guy sitting in your Manhattan apartment trying to figure out how to entertain your society friends, and this is kind of how I think you'd do
1: it. We, we're ta- we're we're talking about diplomacy. I just I'm just curious about how much you got into that uh, that sort of sideline. And I mean, you refer to you refer to a bunch of um, uh, diplomacy zines, but uh, only sort of. Because uh, Gary Gygax was involved in diplomacy at that time, um, but um, you don't discuss the, the the history of diplomacy as much. Um, do you? You said that you see them as two very separate traditions. You're talking about wargaming and diplomacy. Is that right?
2: Well, I kind of you know. I think if you ask somebody back in the '70s, they would tell you there's three branches of wargaming: board, miniature, and diplomacy. Um, it's what George Phillies would tell you if Hmm, you were here. Um, and I think that people did kind of view them as, as related, but, um, you know, dissimilar and just in terms of the, the communities that frequented them, uh, there were people who were diplomacy people, there were people who were miniature wargaming people and people who were board wargaming people. And, uh, points of intersection only really started to emerge around the time that strategy and tactics started in whatever, 67, and from that point forward, as the wargaming clubs, the smaller clubs like the International Federation of Wargaming, uh, began to encompass broader ambitions and a broader scope, you'll see more of those mingling. And the confluence of all those influences ended up helping propel the role-playing phenomenon when it did come out, because so much of role-playing came out of the discourse that had been built up for diplomacy. I mean, I, I do um, in Chapter 4 of the book, I do cover... You know what the earliest situation of diplomacy was, and how the board game worked, and its 58 incarnation, and then the 59 incarnation, and a bit of its postal uh, situation as well in chapter four. But I agree, there, there. I mean, there's so much material about all that. If you want to get into like the politics of that diplomacy community, uh, there was a, you know, it was it was a community famous for bitter infighting among the people trying to organize it, and. Uh, even more so than the War Game Digest, even more so than those schisms, there was just a constant flame war in the diplomacy community, which is unsurprising given the character of the game.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the the nature of the game itself would, would draw the type of people that would be prone to uh, that kind of uh, kind of infighting, but. Um, uh, it- I guess the 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 things that you bring into the book just for the readers who or for the uh, listeners who haven't read the book, which I assume is uh, most. and i would I would uh, encourage pretty much everybody who has an interest in this podcast to go get the book. Yeah, absolutely. But um, uh, for the uh, for the listeners, uh, I will say that you know the 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 thread that kind of connects all of this is 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 Dungeons and dragons and role playing games. and uh, you know it is it is to the uh, to the book's credit that it goes in. To um, wargaming history, uh, as, you know, to the extent that it does, and and, and footnotes it and, and sources it very well. Um, but um, you know, the if uh, if you're interested in in the history of D and D and then role playing um, and how it, it really comes out of a, of, a, of a simulation tradition, um, uh, that's the thing that I think I've, I found most uh, most interesting was that uh, you know when I was when I was growing up and I learned about. Dungeons and Dragons, and then I played it, and then I heard, oh, it you know comes from this thing called chainmail, and I never really had a good understanding of you know what that was or why. And um, hearing about how uh, Gary Gygax basically was just this prolific game designer who just wanted to write about game systems and 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 design them and and tweak them and collaborate with other people on uh, on these things. And um, there was one comment uh, in the book early on where. Uh, Basically, he's trying to uh, design a set of miniatures rules, and he complains that you know several months after he's written these rules, he hasn't gotten any comments back from the person he's collaborating with, and he finds it very frustrating. Uh, you know, he just really wanted to uh, to uh, to make games, and um, and the place that he originally the place that he started was actually Avalon Hill board games, which uh, which is really uh, which is really amazing. He was a prolific contributor to the General uh, when. Um, when uh when that started so uh
2: him and arneson too right i mean so arneson's earliest credits are all in the avalon hill general from his local wargaming club called the centurions they were working on a tactics three um so really i mean i think the avalon hill kick-started both of these guys i would say too that you know again i You know, I certainly when I talk about this book mostly and when people discuss it in forums, it's mostly about D&D because most people are interested in D&D. But, you know, a lot of the stuff I did to find the early history of wargaming was intended... Now, I was looking at sources like, say, Perla. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Perla's book, The Art of Wargaming. The books out there that seem to be histories of wargaming. And, you know, when I read these, I mean, I... I could tell none of the authors or even the people that the authors were citing had ever seen any of these games, ever seen Helvig or Venturini or the elder rice Fitz, the younger rice Fitz had seen Verdi de Vernois or Meckel or any of these guys. Mm -hmm. And I kind of made it my, you know, my mission to go find that stuff and translate it. Yeah, I mean, again, it's not like it's translated in English, <laughs> you know, and actually get to a point where we understood what the actual innovations were as we went through the decades of this and the kind of early history of wargaming. And, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that what I did will we'll get Pearl off your shelf if you have it there. In the sense that, you know, a lot of the stuff you'll see in contemporary wargaming histories is based on fourth hand sources. And a lot of these cases, I really went back and found these books. I, you know, to get a copy of Christoph Feichmann's. De Konigspiel, the the King's game, which is one of like the earliest things people count as a war game. And I went to the National Library of Sweden in Stockholm and camped out there for a couple days to like translate from their copy, just cribbing Fractor into my MacBook Pro and then, hmm. you know, going home at night and, and making what I could of it. Um, so I mean it. You know, a lot of these sources are very difficult to get, and, um, you know, I, I hope that people out there who are interested in the history of war gaming at least, will look at this as being a far more authoritatively sourced history of war gaming than anything else that's out there.
1: Oh, definitely. No, I mean, that's that's the most impressive thing about the book. I mean, it's uh, the fact that you actually went to... the. I saw a reference to the Hoosier archives, which uh, actually I think I donated a bunch of stuff to, like, 20 years ago, um, when I cleaned out all my old uh, diplomacy zines. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, just that, that somebody is is going to to these sources and uh, and investigating them and actually finding that you know things that people remember from a long time ago aren't necessarily the most accurate things. You know, shocking, but um, but it's 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 really important to demonstrate that I think that to say, look, you know, I, I don't care what this guy said. Here's here's the thing that somebody mimeographed in 1965, and this is what it says. And this is, you know, this is who wrote it and this is what they were saying and this is what the discussion was at that time. I mean,
2: obviously a sensitive issue still. Um, And that, you know, I try not to make this out like anybody is stupid or, you know, that this is anything other than just human nature being unable to, you know, remember things 40 years ago. but. Yeah, I mean, it it certainly is the case that many of the previous histories of gaming have relied on interviews, and um, I I certainly don't believe that using interviews is viable. I had plenty of opportunity to compare my own interviews with these guys. When I started this, Gax and Arneson were both alive, and Mm -hmm. I was able to talk to them. Um, And I've certainly been able to compare testimony from any number of people against what they said themselves 30 years or 40 years before, and it's very enlightening to do so.
1: Yeah, uh,
0: mm-hmm. it, it it's just really good salt historical practice. I mean, this this is just uh, it's really. Like I mean, I've said it's a landmark book, and it's something that I'm going to be keeping on my shelf for reference for a very very long time. I think. Um, you do stop. I mean, you you're, the book goes up to. Uh, D&D and a little bit beyond, would you like to talk uh, I mean, I'm not sure how much you're into computer wargaming, but you want to talk a bit about how, how computer wargaming and Avalon Hill's attempts to get into the whole computer wargaming business, how that shifts and changes the hobby. Do you have any perspective on that? Because you do have, you have the automation of the other side. You all of a sudden have play-by-email, which changes play-by-mail. You have creation of news groups, which allows easier communication, but you also don't have the community necessarily expanding or growing in a huge in a huge, uh, exponential way. Yeah,
2: I mean, so the, the last bit about this I really have in the epilogue is about uh, Automated Simulations Incorporated, the company that later became Epix, and their games like Invasion Orion, which are among the earliest microcomputer marketed games that were intended to be your war opponent in a war game. And I did specifically drop them a mention because it was the earliest instance of that I could really find um, you know, you can find in the Play-Doh system various things that have wargaming kind of structures in them, but if you want to get down to the micros, to the Apple II, the TRS-80, the, the original Commodores, and you know, ask what, what were the people who were marketing to the wargamer who didn't have an opponent and needed one, and the computer could be your opponent, um, I think automated simulations is among the first of those. Now, I mean, obviously, I am profoundly uh, a fan of computer games of, of all all kinds. And, um, you know, I'm a big fan of a, a lot of uh, contemporary war games. Um, but, you know, well, for one thing, my book was long enough already, right? I think I really kind of reached, oh, sure. a, <laughs> reached a closing point for it uh, at around 700 pages there. Um, but I think we, we reached a natural closing point, too, in the sense that, you um, You know, I'm hard pressed to say what I think the great innovations have been uh, when I look at this from a system perspective. And I even say this about RPGs. I I said this to someone the other day in another interview that, you know, I didn't really think that that World of Warcraft had added much to online role playing games that MUDs had not created. And, I, you know, again, I, I think that's kind of true. Um, I mean, the, the fundamental system ideas that you needed were were present in a mud and it's not like, wow, has taken that any place different. And similarly, I mean, I... think it's I
1: mean, pretty, I, pretty accepted. I mean, I think, I think you'll find a lot of support for that.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I think I'll find a lot of controversy to it for, for it too, but, um, you know, certainly the computers have allowed the simulations to become so much deeper. I mean, you guys were referring earlier to the... The kind of dichotomy that I position in the book between realism and playability, which has gone through the hobby community from its very inception. Should we try to make our simulation as deep as we can, or should we try to make the game as enjoyable as we can? And computers, in some sense, resolve that dichotomy, because they could make the simulation so deep, but you just didn't incur any of the complexity yourself. You know, how how deep is the simulation in, in wow, of endurance, of mitigation, of avoidance, and things like that? But Most you know, you just know that you put on the purple armor and everything works. And, you know, you can crunch the numbers if you feel like it, um, but, you know, that you don't actually literally have to resolve this every time somebody takes a swing in battle and add all the modifiers and figure out, you know, what the result of a hit is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that 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 has enabled the simulation to deepen, but I'm not sure that conceptually the principles behind it differ that much. And similarly, you know, as much as I love, say, StarCraft II, um, you know, I'm not sure that what it represents, well, I guess, so I guess the, the simultaneous move concept is instantiated imperfectly in earlier war games. You can argue that real-time strategy games take simultaneous movement beyond the level where it was in uh, war games previously, but there were certainly people who attempted simultaneous movement in various ways, and even people who got it to work to some degree. Um, but that that would be the one innovation I'd probably point to that I see in computer war games is is getting
1: real time simultaneous move to actually work well. You know that even goes back. Uh, you know it's it's amazing that the first, uh, you know simultaneous you know real time whatever simultaneous resolution, uh, war games were only like ten or fifteen years after Dungeons and Dragons. I mean I think. Uh, Patton versus Rommel was like 1987 or 88 or something like that mm. so uh, I mean the 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 hobby just uh, I mean exploded I mean it seems it's it had this this really sort of uh, tentative tepid beginning uh, you know you talk about the early conventions where it it uh, it showed that um, you know, most of the people who subscribed to the uh, Avalon Hill General were uh, 17 years old, uh, right. and then and then you know then then it uh, you know everything um, sort of took off very fast. Now I, I will say that I think that uh, those same 17 year olds are now still going to uh, to board wargame conventions since uh, everybody there seems to be uh, you know between 40 and 60. So. Uh, All right. Kind of, kind of interesting how that, how that. There was always this that you, you bring up the point of the, um, the market always being very uh, vertical in the sense that it was, uh, it depended on the um, sort of obsessive, acquisitive uh, habits of 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 a small group that was, you know, dedicated to buying every game in the in the hobby that came out, and uh, how Avalon Hill was trying to broaden its appeal. And uh, you know that it maybe that that in wargaming, you know, that's still that's still a problem and or a problem that's still a consideration. So uh, yeah, I mean, that hasn't and much.
2: arguably they never really they never really cracked the nut, right? In some sense, right. um, they never got this to not be a gendered hobby. Uh, right. They they struggled with that forever. I mean, we're interesting, you know, D and D is not. I mean, it it may be slightly more men who play uh, fantasy games, but it's not you know so radical as it is in uh, the wargaming community. Mm-hmm. Um, well, especially and, if
0: you take it to the computer role, role gaming community, where a computer role playing game community, where it's a large female population, yeah, and they, but you don't have that in the strategy community or the wargaming community, really.
1: Yeah, and they uh, right it, true. I'm 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 curious about um, you know there was that brief period in uh, in wargame history where you could actually go into these uh, you know toy stores and just see you know third, Avalon Hill's Third Reich on the shelf you know above. Uh, Monopoly, or uh, you know, you go to Toys R Us and they had the game. Um, have any sense for for how that crazy period happened and and why? Because I mean, they, they clearly that they, they clearly went away, and I think very rightfully so. I'm not sure how many copies of those things they were selling, but how did that how did that become such a become such a phenomenon for such a brief period of time?
2: Well again, uh, they got good press initially. When you look at things like Gettysburg, um, you know, they they looked carefully at ways that they, they could get the game's uh position for consumers and they I think they did show up as a kind of kind of safe thing for kids to do. Um, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to other kinds of pastimes that kids might be interested in at the time. This seemed pretty innocuous. Um, and so I mean, I think they they positioned them pretty cannily. Now that much said, you know, that was I think necessarily going to be short-lived in the sense that um by by the mid 80s, like mores really did begin to change. by the, the time of computers, again, kids got sucked into computers and then after that the market necessarily would drop out of it. Um, and it would become a very a very niche thing and that's um, you know, both both good and bad, right? It's um right. you know, bad in the sense that um, you know there's something cultural perhaps that that is endangered but, by that, but I don't think it's really in any, any real threat of becoming extinct there there's a dedicated community of people interested in it but it's no longer going to be a mass market phenomenon and it'd be be hard to imagine what would bring it back to being a mass market phenomenon at this yeah, point yeah i
1: can't imagine anything i mean that the uh, you know the whole all the all the um, all the uh, you know obstacles that you mentioned that um, the early hobby face you know people couldn't you couldn't play the game solitaire uh people uh, couldn't find you know other like-minded people in their community i mean computer games and the internet have completely fixed all that, right? I mean, you can buy uh, a a huge uh, selection of games about historical battles um, and play them against the computer. Uh, And if you don't want to do that, then uh, you can play basically any board war game that exists uh, through Vassal or, you know, some other, um, you know, Electronic, you can have a basically a, a com, an exact representation of the board and, and components, and play it either electronically, uh, f- sort of face to simultaneously, you know, real time, or you can play it by email. And uh, and it, that didn't turn the hobby into a into a mass market phenomenon. So uh, there's clearly something much more niche about it than, than just the obstacles.
2: I mean, I hear kids today play like Magic: The Gathering on computers, right? Based right. the whole point of it, you own the cards. Yeah,
0: exactly. Right. <laughs> um,
1: so, I mean, it's topsy turvy dumb. I have it on my iPad, so I don't know what that says about me.
0: <laughs> you have magic on your iPad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a big thing bit? these days, yeah. Yeah,
1: oh, yeah. All right. We, I thought next week was the uh, iPad iOS uh, magic episode. It's not? <sighs> if it is.
0: Oh. Well, uh, I'm not going to be here if it is, but, you know, you have other people. You can host that, Bruce. All right. You can get all your, you can tap your mana or whatever yeah, you have to do in that game. Yeah, good. All right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you tap, right? Yeah, you that's yeah, that's yeah,
1: that's it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well,
0: There's manas in these kegs and you tap them or something. I don't know. Um, John, thank you for coming on uh, the <reduzidamente> oh, show. My pleasure, really. That was. Really a pleasure, and again to listeners. Um, I mean, I've raved about this book two or three times already on the blog, and this is probably not going be the last time that I'm referring to it or citing it. Um, please check it out. There will be a, there will be a link uh, in the description of the show on the podcast and on the Idle Thumbs forum uh, link uh, to Amazon where you can buy it. Uh, the book is playing at the world from Unreason Press. Does, has a, does Unreason do other stuff, or is this their first book, or? No, I, I own
2: Unreason. It was created oh, purely you are, Oh, you are! Oh, you are! Oh, you
0: are Unreason. So I you am Unreason. Get this like, L'unreason c'est Unreason. Same Well, I mean, I,
2: you know, if you went to a major publisher and said, "I'd like to write a 720-page right. book about the history of simulation games," you wouldn't good, get seven. Yeah. Good
0: luck. To an academic press, and it would never get done. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Because the editing process there takes forever.
1: It's available on Kindle and in paperback, and you can.
0: Yes. You get either button.
1: one, or like me, get both. So,
0: and I, I, I've already loaned it to a friend who wanted to read it. So, it's going to be going through my circle, I think, pretty quickly. Um, so, hopefully, it comes. Hopefully, it comes back in one piece. Uh, the bibliography is excellent. The footnotes are great. I, John, thanks again. My pleasure, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank, or well, I forgot to thank last week, Michael Hermes, who will be doing the editing uh, on this show. Next week, Rob Zachney returns, hopefully to take over the chair and find a proper topic for us, or another proper topic. Uh, have a good week, everyone, and keep listening and subscribing and rating us on iTunes, yada, yada, yada. You know the deal.
1: All right. Good night, everybody.
0: Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye-bye.